Hello, everybody. This is Austin Bridges welcoming you to the LL Research Law of One podcast, episode number 94. LL Research is a nonprofit dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community, and towards this end has two websites the archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. I'm joined today by Jim McCarty and Gary Bean. In this podcast, we discuss spiritual topics through the lens of the Law of One and our own personal experiences. We hope to only offer a resource and provide discussion, not to present ourselves as authorities with the final word on these subjects. Please exercise your utmost discernment while listening to us ramble on. Many of the topics we discuss on this podcast come from the questions sent in by seekers. If you have a question or topic you'd like for us to discuss, please send it in. You can email them to us at contact at llresearch.org or go to www.llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Austin, and this is the LL Research Law of One podcast. Gary and Jim, you ready to go? Ready. For the most part. <laughs> we can uh wait and let you get cut up if you want no this is about the best you're gonna get from me so <laughs> might right. as well go forward well today uh we're changing things up a little bit you've probably noticed that for the past while we have chosen to focus on a single topic through an entire episode of the podcast whereas we used to go through various questions and today we're doing a throwback where we're taking some uh, smaller questions that probably wouldn't be able to fill up an entire episode uh, sent in from seekers. So we'll be going over a few different topics that are kind of just a random smattering. So to get us started, we have one question sent in from Steve, who writes, how can we know by experience that we are all one? I know that we are all one and have even had experiences where it was revealed that there is only unity. However, in my day-to-day -day life, I feel a sort of separation from others and often even a desire not to be around other people. Gary mentioned that he sometimes has trouble receiving others' communication, wanting to be protected from their monologuing and not wanting to give certain people attention. I called you out, Gary. <laughs> Dolores Cannon sorry, talks sorry. about the waves of volunteers. I think this is similar to Raw talking about wanderers, that the second wave who are like antennas to channel and helpful energy, didn't really want to be around people, which somewhat defeated the purpose. Any advice? And I think that we should start with you, Gary. <laughs> Steve, why'd you call me out on that? <laughs> Just because I said that on a public podcast does not mean that I wanted that shared again. Um, yeah, just about that particular point there, are many people on this planet with an affliction towards the I-I-I-ness. Like, um, you know, in a conversation with you, they don't really need reciprocity other than you to be there and absorb what they have to share. And they, they monologue in that regard. And, you know, that is perfectly where they need to be and we're all the creator and um, they are divine in precisely that. However, the impact it has upon my energy system is that it can become draining because I feel like I give my attention to that other person and, and then it feels like I have to be on and like I can't shut the door and I just kind of witness energy being 
being drained from me. I need to be fed a little bit. And part of that has to do with a mutual exchange of ideas and information. So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to go on that, that side rant. Um, uh, a few points I wanted to offer, and that's that one, like solitude is, is okay. It's okay being where you are and, and feeling what you're feeling. And it's best to explore maybe why it is you don't want to be around others and accept whatever material you find. I mean, maybe you have designed this incarnation for a more solitary journey this time around. Um, and you maybe needed to balance a lifetime where you were very engaged and involved with others or, and you just need to go within more. Or maybe there is like a, a blockage that, or a wounding or a distortion that, that needs healed, that's interfering with the communion you could be enjoying um, with others. Either way, through this process of knowing and accepting yourself, the distortions that are not needed will fall away. And if it's not falling away, then it could be part of your, your personality matrix. And I have thoughts about oneness, but how, what if I split up my reply so that I'm not just ranting at length here? What do you think, Austin? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, Jim, what do you think? So we're going on the second part of the question first. Um, I guess so. Okay. So. Well, <clears throat> I think that once you've been on the spiritual path consciously long enough, that there is some type of transformation that begins to happen to you so that you don't want to concern yourself so much with the mundane world anymore. Uh, it kind of seems uh, irrelevant. It seems like uh, it's just a functionary sort of thing that you do to get by. You go shopping, you gas for your car, whatever. But what you really want to do is talk to people and be with people who want to talk about spiritual matters and keep that focus going that you've gotten going being a spiritual seeker. It isn't um, something that, I guess at first, people don't have so much trouble balancing the spiritual journey with getting back into the mundane world. But after a while, I do think that uh, we need to make that focus more fine and, and, and be who we are and who we're becoming and who we're transforming into so that um, this transformation can take place more and more effectively. And I think that Ross speaks about that later on in the context around session 80, where they're talking about the path of the adept, where it frees itself of the opinions and bonds and constraints of other selves in order to seek the heart of other selves, the heart of all of ourselves, the, the one infinite creator. And sometimes that looks to other people witnessing it, that you're you know, kind of traveling an unfortunate path or separating yourself. You know, it, it's a seeming separation. It's, it's only a separation in the mundane terms. In the spiritual terms, it's a unification. So those are my thoughts on that. All right. Um, actually wanted to ask you, because you 
historically have been a pretty solitary person, I think. And yet, at least in your current life experience, you're also a very service-driven person. So I was wondering if you had any um, difficulty reconciling those two drives within you. No, because, well, of course, I, I seek to serve in various ways. Uh, Camelot Journal, answering emails, um, conducting channeling sessions and so forth. But mostly the service to others that comes before my face in my ex daily round of activities, I look at that not being by accident. And so if I, I hear that somebody needs a little help in one way or another, then I, I try to help them out. Um, just my next door neighbors, <laughs> they uh, uh, appreciate it when I blow the leaves from my trees that fall onto their side of their yard, off their side of the yard, back to my side of the yard so I can mulch them. Yes, simple little things like that. Um, helping somebody um, with whatever they got going in the yard for the day or whatever, like I said, whatever presents itself to me. And I see that as a message, you know, here, here's a chance to serve. Here's somebody that needs some help. So that's basically it. Okay. Can I ask a quick follow-up to that, Austin? Yeah, go for it. Uh, Jim, you have um, throughout your life, correct me if I'm wrong, for the most part preferred distance from from most people and have actively reduced the amount of shared space that you've had with one of people in preference to your pre-incarnational need for solitude by pre-incarnational. I mean, you, you know, designed your life that way where would you say you were you know rel at relative peace with this aspect of yourself this um strong need for solitude or did that create conflict within you um no i don't feel conflict i'm, I'm not sure what you're referring to when you say that i've reduced the contact with others did, could you be more specific specific oh uh, i'm mostly i'm talking um pre carla's passing before you underwent your transformation but you were mostly a solitary person for instance like you slept separately from carla throughout <laughs> most of your marriage because you needed your own private space because you had given up your six years alone on the land and that was how you approximated it oh. in your own home was to have your own space and uh, socially generally with others you um didn't uh, homecomings for instance offered a little uh resistance for you because you had to do all this socialization that wasn't natural to your being so you know you preferred solitude is it was my understanding of you in general yeah uh, i think that's probably why i was born uh, an only child mm. and why living on the land was not a problem for me you know by myself as far as carla and i not sleeping together we were married when i was 40 and I had never slept with anyone and didn't think that I could get a good night's sleep if anyone was in bed with me. So instead, Carl and I would cuddle in her bed upstairs before we went to sleep. And then in the morning, she would come downstairs to my bed and we would cuddle until we got up for the day. Uh, it's true that uh, solitude has been the way for me for most of my life. Um, but as time has gone on, I've seen the opportunities to uh, be with people and in the last couple of homecomings i realizing what you had said there you know that i was tending to separate myself i made an effort to uh, go the other way to be in here in the living room with folks so that uh, i could be part of what they're talking about and um, not be so distant 
So, uh, yeah, I've realized that. And I've also you know, tried to balance it here and there with um, being with people. Although now the uh, pandemic is uh, <laughs> making it uh, uh, the way to be, <laughs> more or less, which is curious. You know, I have nothing to do with the pandemic, I tell you. I promise I didn't. <laughs> it's all Jim's plan. <laughs> um, was that all, Gary? Yeah, I'll stop there. Thanks, Jim. Um, so okay. Steve, he seeded his question by asking, how can we know by experience that we are all one? Which is, you know, the more general question there. So Gary, what do you think? Yeah, how can we know by experience that we are all one? Well, that's the, that's the mountaintop, isn't it? Like, that's what is the that's what the original desire within us is seeking underneath our myriad other desires. In fact, I think every other desire is something of a, a substitute, maybe even a false substitute for that oneness. So any it's, it's the whole program of spiritual seeking and the uh, whole confederation message provides a philosophy or a path or a way towards that. So, you know, there's a lot that can be said, but about oneness it is our truest reality it's our truest state of being so if you steve exist your your existence um means that oneness already lives within you or you're better your existence arises out of oneness or within oneness but the point is you don't necessarily, in my understanding, need other selves to experience oneness. Uh, oneness, because you, because it is your true state of being, can be discovered and lived within you on a desert island. Uh, though Ra indicates that that is likely a more difficult path, because without other selves, you don't get to m mirror to you the fruits of your own beingness, as Ra says. Um, I th think, you know, other selves are the primary form of catalyst. Catalyst is that which, if used, accelerates our journey, develops our chakras, gives us a chance to activate and, and balance everything that, that needs worked on with ourselves. So how do you know the experience of oneness? Well, this is where I am wholly unqualified to speak because Gary being the incarnational person speaking now doesn't hasn't really consciously known that. I know it through the study of mystics and mystical philosophy. And I listen to my mystical heart um, and have developed a fairly refined philosophy around oneness and non-duality, yet I speak not from experience. Um, so I, just a couple more thoughts. Oneness, that word, or can is, can be abstracted and made into an object. But the thing about oneness in my the understanding comes out of me from somewhere is that the self cannot get outside of oneness to see oneness. To see oneness is to become one. Or in other words, to lose or dissolve the separate self, which looks outward and sees separate phenomena and sees the individual as different and other than and separate than a whole world of other separate objects. 
it's, it's as Eckhart Tolle and Ramana Maharshi described, one must release the wrong identification with the thoughts as self, with the sense that there is a, a separate entity living in your skin. Um, uh, Ramana in particular offers a method of self inquiry whereby one goes searching for this I inside the, and and as, excuse me, I'm getting a little stuck. Uh, if one diligently engages this search for the eye, the, the, the search will end where all true searches do in the realization that there is literally no solid self. There's no individual eye. There's just the arising of this constellation of thoughts. And there's this story of self that keeps it all together so how do you experience oneness spend time in stillness and silence so thank you the end <laughs> uh, jim what are your thoughts on how we can know by experience that we are all one well i think like gary said uh, experiencing that oneness would be the very best way but for most of us we have not yet done that so and again you know taking the word of the mystics is uh, probably a very helpful thing to do because they have such a inspiring and penetrating way of describing their experiences of oneness and giving their advice like Gary was mentioning the Ramana didn't mention um, and as far as the silence I think that uh, meditation is probably one of the best ways of coming as close as we can come at any particular time with experiencing the oneness. Um, the confederation of the planets in the service of the infinite creator has since their beginning days of communicating through our group in 61, said that meditation was a way of communing with the creator and listening to the creator. But we don't listen usually for words, words can come, but usually it's uh, an enriching of the nature of our being, which kind of, um, as time goes on, bubbles up into our consciousness so that we can feel or intuit uh, the reality of this unity towards which we are headed. And continued meditations, I think, are ways of tuning the dial on our uh, inner speakers so that we can be more receptive to how that still small voice inside can communicate with us. Perhaps we will get uh, images or inspirations or um, a direction to think upon or a concept to focus upon. So that would be my thought. Uh, I think meditation for us who are seeking that journey of unity is probably the best path to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Meditation like the Confederation never <laughs> shuts up about. I just want <laughs> us to meditate. And um, like you both said, reading from the mystics and contemplatives um, 
they always think the best mystics are ones that can offer a perspective that sort of puts you into that mindset as you listen or read their words. Um, when I look at Steve's questions combined, I see that he's, he says that he has experienced it and perhaps maybe he does have a practice where he can reach that state at will when he is alone. And then he talks about struggling in his day-to-day -day life to bring that realization. So my only further thought, aside from what both of you have already shared, is just to point out that we are in third density and the veil exists here for a, a purpose. And to me, my, the most useful definition of faith for me is one in which we acknowledge that here in third density, most of us are not going to recognize oneness at all moments. Um, for somebody like Ramana Maharshi or Eckhart Tolle, who knows why, but they had something happen to them where it was literally all moments that they did realize it. But I think that's not something that we can expect for everybody in third density. And mm -hmm. so to acknowledge in third density that that is not something that we are necessarily even supposed to experience in every single moment. And yet we still act within our lives as if the knowledge that we are all one is true, despite not having that direct perception, the direct experience that proves it to us in every single moment, we still behave as if that is true. And even further, I think that third density, there's a lot of learning that happens here and a lot of you know what Ra would call polarizing that happens here. And I think that is primarily done not necessarily only done, but primarily done through trying to rise to the challenge in moments where you are feeling perhaps the most separated from others, and yet you're able to muster that will to uh, offer your love and to offer your service. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you overextend yourself. There's obviously a balance between self-care, self-preservation, and offering service. But I do think that uh, we are meant to be challenged here a little bit by the lack of perception of unity and oneness. And part of our job is to rise to that challenge and to push our comfort levels to try to offer our love and service to this troubled density. Um, any further thoughts on Steve's questions from either of you? couple quick follow-ups when uh, what jim was talking about about the transformation that comes along with uh the path of the adept and disassociation for other selves it made me think that like um you know this world is populated with a great diversity of people who have uh, different energy sets and different needs and one may not be in resonance with everybody else uh, of course, seeing the underlying unity of things can entirely transform one's consciousness, but uh, there is also something to be said for finding a, a group or other cells with whom one is in, in resonance. And I think it, it's, you know, it's okay to have boundaries or to say I'm not particularly drawn to that other self. And then point to Austin, that was awesome about... Uh, 
you know, the veil intentionally hiding oneness from us and better it is uh, to accept the fact that we are in this veiled environment and work within those limitations while still are trusting through faith alone that things are one even if not apparent to our senses and the point i want to make there is that just like you know, Ra describes how the seeking of love in the moment empowers the seeking uh, and, and empowers the self through squaring one's efforts. And that seeking of love may start out really having no idea what love truly is. And it may take us a lifetime to even move a couple feet closer or to, to what love is, but somehow Ross says it's so central an act of will to seek love. So even if we don't have conscious knowledge of what love is, just by invoking it and setting our intention on it, somehow we're magnetized to be drawn closer to it. And the same with oneness, like the word itself is, if we're, um, language itself is inherently dual it's making oneness into an object so it's already missing the mark but nonetheless just contemplating oneness and thinking about oneness is a way to continually set the compass of the journey so that one will orient towards closer and closer towards true north and towards the the ultimate destination but anyway that's it for me thanks nice nicely put yeah thanks for that all right, our next question then comes from Michael. And Michael asks, what's the difference between ego and personality? Ra seems to indicate in general that ego is to be left behind, but spiritual growth happens through the disciplines of the personality. I think our society tends to conflate the two. So I'm curious how you guys conceptualize the difference. Jim, how would you like to start us off? Well, um, my definition of ego would be the uh, sense of the self that's put forward by a person who might not yet be conscious of this seeking process that hasn't yet uh, begun the spiritual journey. Uh, I would say that the ego is the qualities of that person that uh, he or she puts forward in order to succeed in the mundane world. Uh, earning money, uh, having a family, getting a job, nice house, proper friends, and so forth. My definition of the personality then would be the sense of the self that is put forward by a conscious seeker of truth. That sense of the self would include a, a wider view, um, an overview, shall we say, um, the purpose of the life, how to serve others, how to open the chakras and balance them how to move forward in consciousness expansion and so forth. Um, I think that, uh, see, there was a quote from Ra where they said, uh, the acceptance of the self, the forgiveness of the self and the direction of the will was the path towards the disciplined personality. Your faculty of will is that which is powerful within you as co-creator. You cannot ascribe to this faculty too much importance Thus, it must be carefully used and directed in service to others for those upon the positively oriented path. So I think that, that, that the personality is really um, the tool that we use to balance the various catalysts that come our way in our daily round of experience. Uh, 
And that personality has um, the ability to reflect um, many, many different facets of the jewel that it is. Uh, the, the personality gains in clarity and in definition and in expansion of its being as we continue on the spiritual path. So I think the personality is something that we can expand and the ego will be more of something that contracts. So uh, that would be my basic thought. All right, Gary, what are your thoughts? Uh, firstly, I feel much less strong about this question. Also, I'm not sure of what value our replies can be because these are such undefined terms and their meaning is often so arbitrary. I think ego in particular, whereas personality may have a more fixed meaning, at least in the Confederation philosophy. So you know, what does ego mean to me? <clears throat> I think generally how it's used is what Ross says in 15.12 when they say the third blockage, that is blockage of the yellow ray, <clears throat> resembles most closely that which you have called ego. So in a more cultural or colloquial sense, uh, ego tends to be, I think, associated with a sense of an inflated sense of self, a sense of self-importance, infatuation with the self, somebody who is lacks empathy and is selfish and maybe power hungry and controlling, probably male. <laughs> I think of uh, e big egos being associated with male. So it's that's what I think Ra is describing in 1512 is this yellow ray blockage that, that manifests uh, in that particular way. However, I've also seen, speaking of Ramana Maharshi, he's speaking in the first half of the 20th century and being translated into English, uh, used the word ego as shorthand for the false self, the separate self, the individual I, which does not exist, but which we make a solid and permanent seeming identity of. And if you recognize it as shorthand for that, for the, the individual illusory separate self, then it works on that level, I think. Um, as to personality, the Confederation does talk about our personality shell, and Rod does talk about the disciplines of the personality. And my loose sense of it is that the personality is say like we're in between lives and by the way jim i started uh reading journey of souls it's so good i can see why you loved it yeah oh well, good and you read it right after carla's passing too right uh just before we oh. read eight books of that kind together uh, four of them by dr michael newton and four of them by dr uh weiss and they were all on the topic of uh like journey of souls wow that would be such a good one to read at the end of my own life because it's so comforting and encouraging i was getting emotional um i'm listening to the audiobook actually but um yeah so say sorry tangent say you are a soul in between lives and you're planning your upcoming incarnation you have a a buffet of options in terms of designing 
who your what your personality is going to be for the upcoming incarnation. Like I'm going to be a uh, genetically, I'm going to have a skinny body. I'm going to be a, a scientist. I'm going to be very uh, in my head and intellectually oriented and uh, indifferent to emotion and so forth. Or I'm going to design a different temperament whereby I'm uh, so we, we lost my internet connection for a moment, listeners. So I don't know if I'm repeating something you've already heard, but I was describing how in between lives, one programs for the upcoming incarnation and they choose different personality sets, uh, say like, a, like I was describing it, a scientist who's very intellectually oriented, doesn't pay attention to feelings or versus say you could design to be a female who is more nurturing and a caretaker and eschews the ways of intellectual pursuits. I mean, those being two very simplified options in an infinite complexity of sets. The point is, I see the personality is this container whereby you choose, uh, um, whereby you limit all that you could be, all, all the various personas or ways that you could manifest in a body in space time. And you do this in order to elicit certain lessons. Like I'm going to make myself a physically weak and in person who's easily intimidated in order to maybe find my own power. Or conversely, I'm going to make myself into a very like buff, strong person who overexerts his or her power in order to balance that with um, sensitivity to others and, and being peaceful and so forth. So it's this matrix of various aspects that we design into who we are. And I think, and this is just, what's it called when you conjecture that personality is connected to our outer nature, like likely our lower triad. And it is that outer nature that if undisciplined will be unruly or unconscious, um, untrained, but by disciplining that outer nature, that personality, which is divine. Ultimately we gifted ourselves this personality. So disciplining it through knowing it, through accepting it, we can um, not not subservient. We can tune it to surrender to the higher nature within us. We can crystallize our lower chakras. So th that's my rough take on it. You said you didn't think we'd have much useful to say. I didn't. <laughs> um, the interesting answer, I'm curious, going back to something you said at the beginning, um, do you know if Ramana Maharshi himself used the term ego or if that was a choice of whoever translated his work? Do not know. Okay. That's an interesting <clears throat> point because I heard from Ken Wilbur, and I'm pretty sure that he's telling the truth. Um, the term ego, we get it from Freud, Freudian psychology, but we call it ego because whoever was translating Freud's works uh decided to use latin instead of what freud did was you know he just wrote in german and so ego for his native language philosophy was just the word for i and you know it relates to the id and the super ego and the id was just id 
in Latin means um, it or that. And so whoever translated his works from German to English thought those needed to be a bit fancier. And so that's why we use the Latin terms for them instead of the um, just regular English terms because somebody thought this should be fancy. So that's uh, central to a point that I think Gary brought up and that a big difference between ego and personality, I think would just be semantics. And these terms in particularly, ego in particularly, you know, at one point, even though Rod did uh, use the term ego in the context that Gary shared, they also in a different context said that they didn't want to work with it because it's been, I think they said misapplied mm -hmm. by people. And I think my interpretation of that is just that it started as one thing in Freud's philosophy and then has sort of shifted to this really general term that people use to talk about, I think, elevated personalities. Uh, Gary, you said inflated sense of self. I think those are all ways we use the term ego. And so it's a really complicated term. And I think that we should be careful in using terms like that, especially when we're talking with other people, because I witness so often that, you know, two people can be having a really in-depth conversation, but it seems like even though they're both using the word ego, they both have a wildly different interpretation of what that word means, but they never establish that baseline of how they're using the term. And so then the conversation doesn't have much meaning because they're not actually talking about the same thing. Anyways, uh, more to the heart of the question, I think uh, Michael brings up the idea of the disciplines of the personality. And uh, interestingly, my understanding of what Freud thought ego was, was sort of a navigator between the id and the real world, sort of this interface, the sense of I that we have that allows us to operate in the world on behalf of our subconscious desires that might be wildly wrong. I'm sorry if it is. Um, similarly, though, I see the idea of personality as a sort of interface for us to interact with the real world, you know, on behalf of our own unconscious or on even on behalf of the creator. I think that the idea of the disciplines of the personality is becoming more and more conscious of this interface. And I think it's a process of, as we grow up in the world, we have these imprints from how we're raised, our station in the world. We adopt certain types of uh, personalities, what we like, what we identify as, um, what our hobbies are, what our social circles are, uh, what our favorite sports teams are, things like that. And then it is through all of these that I think these, this collection of things, they form our personality or form various personalities that we interact with the world. And then my understanding of sort of the spiritual path, especially the disciplines of the personality, is that we become more and more conscious of these things that we have adopted as we have crystallized into human beings and determine whether or not they serve us, determine whether or not they're useful on our path, determine whether they're harmful for ourselves or for other people. And it's not that we necessarily get rid of the personality completely because we need an interface with the real world. You know, if we just lost our personality completely and tried to be 
just pure consciousness, nobody would understand who we are, what we're doing, what we're saying. Like we wouldn't have any context for anybody to relate to us from. So we have to have some sort of personality within this world to be a part of it in order to serve it. And I think that's what the disciplines of the personality are, are realizing what kind of personality is part of us, you know, like what maybe even what Gary was talking about, maybe something that we determined before we came into this world that is sort of a life mission that we are meant to adopt as a personality in order to really make our mark here in the world and serve to our best ability. And I think that is generally the dichotomy of what Michael is calling ego and personality. I think ego um, if I'm defining it for my own personal purposes, is sort of this uh, lack of realizing what your personality is and lack of bringing your consciousness to it. And so you are just sort of um, an unconscious being operating through a personality without realizing the effects of that personality on you and on the world around you. And sometimes that could be through inflated sense of self or even a deflated sense of self, um, things like that. And then the disciplines of the personality would be becoming conscious of that and consciously working with it on your spiritual path to better serve. So those are my thoughts. Nice, um, nice job, Austin. Well, thank you. Um, any more thoughts from either of you? I would, <laughs> I would just add to uh, what you said, Austin, the word transparent. I think one of, if not the goal of the discipline of the personality is to, like you said, not to erase it. I think that's so well said because it's, it is this interface. It is this container or vehicle to, to hold our higher consciousness here on earth, but to make it transparent to the one within the personality undisciplined is opaque to the one but through like you said making it conscious um loving and forgiving the self that personality becomes literally on a time space level transparent so that the light of the one shines through the personality and transforms the personality that's all mm -hmm. yep i agree all right so then we have a question from Nick and Nick asks, how do we help the people who like the pain they're in? How do we help the people who are addicted to suffering? And then he says, I'll leave it open-ended. Um, Jim, how would you like to tackle that one? Well, I don't know if I've got a lot to offer this. I mean, you know, really, uh, as Ross said, we can't, help another person unless we've been asked to help. And if a person enjoys where they are, then I don't know if there's anything that we can really do unless, you know, we subscribe to the old uh, axiom that uh, misery loves company and want to put ourselves in a counselor sort of role um, and just listen to what the person's got to say. And if we feel any kind of inspiration it comes through our intuition or our minds to share it with them. Um, I guess it would be a natural thing to want to relieve somebody's suffering or pain. So you, if you hadn't been asked though, uh, I don't know how, uh, 
actually, I don't know how to go about it, even if they ask, how, you know, how do I get rid of the suffering and pain? Um, the techniques that Ross suggests for dealing with catalyst and uh, certainly pain and suffering would be large catalyst is to go through the balancing process. But if a person really enjoys where they are with their pain and suffering, then there doesn't seem to be any motivation that you could use to change your situation. Um, I've never met anybody of that nature. So I, you know, I have no experiential background there. Um, I'm, that's about all I can say. I'm at a loss, actually. I, I don't know if there's anything else that, that I could do other than to put myself in a counseling role and see well, what can I do for you? It is a tough, tough one. Um, Gary, do you have any thoughts? I think the most effective strategy is to ask the other person what is wrong with them repeatedly. <laughs> and, and tell them to calm down. <laughs> yeah, tell them to, yeah, tell them to calm down. And explain to them exactly how they are screwing up and give them just a full diagnostic readout of how... Um, you see their addiction to pain. Uh, Nick, I'm not making fun of your question. I'm just uh, being a little lighthearted myself about ways not to go about doing things. Um, so, yeah, I feel similarly to Jim, a little bit at a loss here. Uh, I think it's difficult to know other selves and what their true motivations are and why it is uh, any other self does what they do or thinks what they think. I mean, how hard is it to know our own motivations and um, how difficult is it to see the ways that we quote unquote sabotage ourselves, which is what this someone else um, may be doing in this equation. But for the sake of, of discussion, let's just presume that is fully 100% accurate this assessment of this other self who is addicted to suffering and likes their pain. Um, I think we have to be such a situation would be a situation of unconscious patterns like uh, there's there's something operating within the self that is repeating these patterns of pain seeking and suffering creating because there's the self is trying to learn something and f feels rightly or wrongly that only through repetition of this suffering is the message going to get across, I guess. Um, so I, this sounds to me like an unconscious pattern. And in relating to unconscious patterns in other people, uh, we must be careful because we can't push against them or quote, wake them up or build our case rationally um, because the behavior is unconscious. I think the best we can do um, is like Jim said, for the most part, await the request for service because as Rod describes, we can't serve unless it's requested, but we can hold our own frequency. We can embody the most conscious state that we're capable of holding and in so doing reflect to them their own divinity to the deepest depth that we can see it and their own worth and just hope that that offers this uh 
other self an invitation to have a deeper recognition of who they really are, to become conscious of the patterns uh, uh, in operation in their lives. And on a final note, in the material, Ra describes how green ray is ineffectual in the face of blockage. I think there's a lot of room for interpreting what that means. But in loose thumbnail, I think Blu-ray gives the entity, the self, the wisdom to mirror with greater honesty and clarity and in, in a way that's informed by the all-embracing, universal, loving understanding of green ray. So a Blu-ray entity, when encountering someone else addicted to their suffering, who knows, could find creative ways to help them to become conscious of their patterns. And that's all I think if there is going to be any kind of intention set there is that's all you really hope for, for the other entity is that they become, I mean, you hope for their full joy and realization of self as the creator, but you hope that they, it's not that they stop what they are doing, um, only that they become conscious of the patterns uh, and the mechanisms underlying or driving the, the patterns. Back to you, Austin. Yeah, that was, um, I like that answer a lot. I think this is a difficult question to answer because it is kind of a loaded question, the way that Nick asks it, not criticizing the way you're asking the question, Nick, but it presumes that people do like the pain they're in and that they are addicted to suffering. And Gary, you pointed out that these are more than likely unconscious drives. And I think that in talking about a question like this, it's got to be applied on a very individual level. I don't think that there's a lot useful we could say in general, except to point out that, you know, this each situation is infinitely unique. There's so many different ways that a question like this can be applied to any individual. And the way that I interpret Nick asking is that it's a person who um, seems to possibly constantly self-sabotage and always put themselves into situations of suffering and not necessarily that they are you know openly expressing I really like this and I'm so addicted to suffering but that they by their behaviors we interpret them as being addicted to suffering because they seem to not be able to stop themselves from putting themselves into situations like that and in many cases, behavior like that, like Gary was saying, is unconscious and is also the result of some sort of uh, trauma or difficulty in upbringing. And I think that in order to serve that directly, there are a couple things needed that most people won't have. One of them is um, a knowledge of that sort of thing, like uh, well-trained service-oriented therapists who really understand the mechanisms of trauma and human behavior. And another thing, uh, especially if you don't have that first baseline, is a really personal relationship with the person. Um, like Jim brought up, essentially we can only serve to the extent that it is requested. But I do think that here in third density there is um, a very nuanced 
dynamic of free will at play with people who we have intimate relationships with, whether they're family, loved ones, friends, things like that. I think there is a level of personal relationship in which you can know somebody enough to know that even if they are not explicitly asking for your service or for your help, you can recognize that they need help and they are suffering. And it's a really tricky thing. I don't think there's a well-defined way to go about it, but I do think that there are ways, if you know somebody, to offer service and help, to um, help them break this cycle of suffering, even if they don't explicitly say, hey, will you help me break my cycle of suffering? I think in an intimate relationship, a real intimate relationship where you are not viewing yourself as a savior and you are um, doing your best to simply serve the person as the creator, uh, there is some leeway in possibly finding ways to help them without the explicit request. Um, and, you know, that's a... I'll, like I said, very complicated, difficult situation. Every situation is unique. So um, take that as a very general uh, opinion. Uh, any more thoughts on that particular question from you guys? Just one more. You guys have inspired me to reverse field. <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, Confederation seems to look at situations like we have on planet earth now with there's so much suffering and division and doubt and so forth as a kind of call for help hmm. so if we take that point of view if we are in contact with somebody that has a, a, a love of suffering or doesn't seem to be able to get out of the suffering and is not working at it uh, maybe we don't need a specific call. Maybe we could just offer ourselves to, uh, like I think both of you have been saying, uh, develop a kind of uh, a relationship to see if they might want to come over for dinner, have a conversation, go for a walk, um, see what kind of topics come up, what kind of thoughts they are expressing or what they respond to in a positive sense and just see if there's any type of interaction between us that has what we would call a positive effect. And if there is, then uh, make that maybe a, a, a ritual, you know, well, let's get together on Sundays and um, have some lunch and maybe go for a walk or um, do some exercises or do some gardening, whatever and see if there is any progress in our estimation in the suffering, if it's reduced in any way, if a few uh, positive thoughts come out of the person and they feel uh, in, inspired or inspirited by what we're doing or talking about, uh, then keep it up. Yeah, I like that. Um, any from you, Gary? No, not for me. Thanks for that addition, Jim. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, you guys good to keep going? Want to do yeah, one more? How many more we got? Um, there are three more on the list, but I think uh, one more would feel like a good complete show. How about you, Gary? Yeah, likewise. All right. Um, how about we skip the one that would be next on the list um, and go to Lisa's question, which is pretty broad. It 
could give us, we could go on forever or we could just make it short. So um, Lisa asks, please define Kundalini awakening slash experience and its purpose. Does everyone have a Kundalini event in this lifetime? Gary, let's start with you. Kundalini and its purpose. Ah, well, its purpose is spiritual evolution and the realization of self as the creator. Um, I did some study, actually, of the way Ra speaks about Kundalini, and I developed a pretty good grasp of what they mean by Kundalini. That, and what they mean, they said it would be better thought of as the meeting of the inner and outer nature. So what do they mean by inner and outer nature? We have two points in the mind, body, spirit complex system, or let's say our chakras, where energy in streams, we have a south and a north pole as Ra described. Through the south pole associated with the red ray comes what they call cosmic prana or universal life energy or upward spiraling light that comes into our system and moves upward through our chakras and the more that we activate and clear and balance our chakras the more that energy moves upward unimpeded through our system ra calls this energy our outer nature meanwhile they say in the north pole is indwelling the inner nature the inner light the polaris of self the guiding star the birthright the indwelling creator they have a few more names for this energy so this is this is what our our inner nature or our true nature and this energy dwells within and the goal of kundalini they say is to allow the meeting place between this inner nature and outer nature to occur at the indigo ray and thus dissolving all illusions and returning the self once again to what the self had always been and already is and ever will be underneath the illusion and the camouflage one one with the creator one with with everything infinite unlimited self and ra however like all the information ra offers is in whole a a, a philosophy for moving this energy moving the cosmic prana upward through our system through the disciplines of the personality, working on the self, practicing loving forgiveness, and so forth. So every one of these, these tools and disciplines and philosophical perspectives works toward uh, Kundalini, especially as if practice over time, relatively consistently, in a disciplined fashion, and walking the path of the adept uh, however, they don't give a specific instruction set or more information about awakening Kundalini as it's described in 
Kundalini literature. And in that literature, there's a description of this. And I am super vague on this and not well studied. So please bring in a salt shaker when listening to me on these points. Uh, in Kundalini literature, one hears about this dormant energy that is awakened in the south pole of the self and then it travels upward and that can i don't i haven't read much testimony again very vague here but it can move rapidly upward through the self uh, maybe it takes place over time maybe it's just a moment but it manifests in various sometimes bizarre symptoms maybe there's there's shaking there's visions there's uh out-of-body experiences or whatever else may come up as this energy moves upward and i think one of the things it may do is kind of bust through old blockage old crusted condition patterns within the self and this can also have positive manifestations in terms of orgasmic experiences or heightened states of consciousness, expanded awareness, and so forth. I don't fully understand it. Um, I do have another piece to offer, and that's that in my study of pranayama, kundalini is described, and they talk about how it is, I think it's pronounced the Sanskrit, the Sanskrit word is A-J-N-A, and I think it's Aina, uh, or um, we could be American and just call it Ajna, which is the <laughs> indigo ray. And the indigo ray somehow, which is at, it's at the top of the, the Kundalini pipeline within the self. It's as Ra says, it's the uh, end of the energy ingress within the self because it's, it's the gateway open up the gateway and what do you have i mean there is a chakra the crown chakra itself the violet ray chakra but open the gateway and um it's no longer a pathway that's being traveled there's infinity intelligent infinity which is outside it's is beyond space and time and all limits and all forms and so forth so something happens in the indigo ray that sends a signal down to muladhara which is a sanskrit term for red ray and dormant in Muladhara is this Shakti energy that it becomes awakened and its travel upward moves through what uh, Pranayama calls uh, Shashumna. That of the many energetic pathways through which Prana moves in the body, there's like a wild variety of different counts, including like 32,000, 72,000, I don't know. There's three main ones. There's Ida, Ida, and Pingala. And they crisscross at every chakra back and forth like the two serpents uh, coiled around the staff. And the staff then, if you can hold that image in your head, would, would represent Shashumna. It's the main channel. And in Pranayama, it's described that Shashumna only becomes active once Ida and Pingala are balanced. And I draw a correspondence actually to the raw material because Ra describes how the spirit complex uh, is a pathway or shuttle and it only becomes activated when mind and body are balanced. So in my head, who knows if it's right, Ida and Pagala are correlate to mind and body 
or they are the main pranic voltage conveyors for mind and body. And when they are in balance, then this third channel becomes active. The energy is awakened from red ray and begins moving upward. I think this also has correlation to what Ra described as the straight and narrow path. But anyway, um, final thought at the LL published a new book. It's called a concept guide at the end is a deep dive into exploration of the this basic concept, the meeting place of the inner nature and the outer nature, how these two energies relate within the self, how we work with them, and the dangers inherent in uh, working with them without balance. But that's as, um, so you can dive deeper that way if interested. But in terms of like how Kundalini is traditionally perceived, like what you do to awaken it, I um, don't know. And I can say that no, not everyone has a Kundalini event in this lifetime. And I don't know how necessary it is for spiritual evolution. It could be that our normal organic upward movement is actually that would be true is the development of kundalini itself maybe the kundalini phenomenon as people experience it is just an accelerated and accentuated version of that anyway i'll release the mic now jim how would you like to follow that thorough answer up well um i'm not really sure <laughs> i think that such experiences are probably planned pre-incarnatively by us as long as we can use our catalysts efficiently in the incarnation. So I think that whether everybody would have one or not is probably, uh, as Gary said, not likely that everybody would have one. But when the time is right for a person who has made that a possibility in the incarnation, then it happens in a unique way for everyone. And it is something that leaves its mark for the rest of the incarnation, and who knows, probably further, so that your perspective becomes greatly widened. And the amount of separation that you feel from people is greatly reduced the uh, sense of unification is greatly enhanced. And as I mentioned, uh, this happens in all kinds of different ways. Uh, I mentioned to you fellows that uh, the, uh, the guy who came over the weekend to visit me um, had had such an experience. And for him, it was, uh, well, to say unique is uh, an understatement. Uh, he was... Uh, a pharmacist who worked the graveyard shift at a hospital. So when he came home, it was early morning. And in order to get any sleep, he had to have all of his windows uh, covered with the, the black shades that are meant to uh, keep all light out. And uh, he was in a period of despair, I guess, and despondency in his life because he just felt something was missing. Since he was an eight-year-old kid, he just wanted so much to know the meaning of life, who he was and why he was here. And as a member of uh, the Catholic Church in uh, a West African nation, 
uh, he was just not getting the answers. And then uh, at about the age of 13, he moved to this country and moved all over the country and began or can, continued questioning. So this feeling of despondency had kind of grown over the years uh, from a strong desire to seek answers to very basic questions. And he had just not felt like he had gotten very far. So uh, he decided to uh, try just lying on the bed before he went to sleep. And interestingly enough, he said, I wanted to listen to my body to see what it was telling me about my life. And after doing that for a couple of weeks, he began feeling sensations in various portions of his body that corresponded to the energy centers. Uh, he began to see light at the uh, third eye and he didn't know anything about the third eye at the time and he didn't know what was going on. He said, I wonder if this is the devil. I wonder if I'm being possessed. And so he kept this process going and he was also a yoga practitioner. That was one of the ways that he had pursued to try to get a greater understanding of his life. And his body over the period of the next couple of weeks began making adjustments by itself so that his arm would begin to tap on the bed in a certain way and this energy would begin rising through his chakras. And then he would find himself in another position and it would continue rising. And I think he said that it went through seven different cycles and each cycle gave him a greater realization of who he was and why he was here. And on, he said it was August 21st, 2018, he had the, uh, the final realization that uh, he was consciousness. And that's his word for, you know, for God or for uh, the infinite creator or intelligent infinity or whatever. And so he sees uh, everything around him now as consciousness expressing itself in one form or another, uh, both in his own personal life, but in everything he sees around him. So that's just one uh, quite unusual way of having this Kundalini experience uh, happen. Uh, he was seeking understanding and he did want to grow, but the way it happened, it was certainly not planned. Those are both really interesting answers. Um, uh, Gary, you did a very thorough and great job of sort of describing both Ra's take on the Kundalini and then the more traditional look at, I guess, the Eastern philosophies that sort of birthed the idea of the Kundalini and these bodily energies. So I think that is a good focus when talking about something like kundalini again um i think it's important to realize that when talking about things like this it's possible that two people could use the word kundalini to describe two very different experiences um, i think that you know so long as an experience seems embodied physical and also profound in consciousness it can probably somebody might define it as kundalini. Um, the only real thing I would, I have to contribute is just sort of an addition to 
the two different modes that Gary was talking about. Gary described Ra's take on Kundalini being sort of more of a process of processing catalyst and life experience and more of this, I guess, slow process that we go through in developing and crystallizing our chakras and allowing our outer and inner experiences to meet in our energy system. And then the, what I would view as the more traditional view of the Kundalini that I think is more along the lines of its original use in the Eastern philosophies and Hinduism. Um, it is more of an in the moment experience that's brought about by some sort of practice like uh, yoga, meditation, or uh, Gary brought up pranayama. And I do think that both of these views can be valid. And I think a good way to tie them together is Ken Wilber's uh, system that he calls Aqual, uh, all quadrants, all levels, um, and then also all states, all lines, and um, there's more to it. But essentially, how it's relevant to this is that um, what I would view as Ra's take is more along the lines of levels. It's more of a developmental thing where as we continue to process our catalyst we continue to uh, like we were talking about earlier discipline our personality and the meeting of the inner and outer lights moves up our energy system in a more deliberate way that is a slow process of um, allowing our life experience to be uh, transformative and bring us up to that point there is also the uh, that's what Ken Wilber would call a level and basically a developmental level, but there's also states like uh, any state that could be available in a moment of meditation. And I think Kundalini is a sort of state that is available uh, that only slightly depends on what level you're on. Like, I think that you don't necessarily have to uh, have your indigo ray crystallized and open all the time in order to have a kundalini experience and um ken wilber's system is pretty vast and um very intricate but it does a good job describing how these things are sort of like a, a fractal like we can enter states at will but then that's also reflected in the developmental levels that we experience as we go through our lifetimes and then we can extrapolate that into that's uh, can be reflected into densities that we experience as we evolve through this octave through you know the uh, many 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 millions billions of years throughout the octave and so i think that both of the traditional sort of instant experience this kundalini awakening in a moment because of a practice and then Ra's more kundalini awakening through deliberate consistent discipline of personality i think they're both uh related and can both be called kundalini in certain contexts um but that's all i have to contribute for that um any more thoughts from either of you I agree and appreciate both your thoughts. And I just want to add two really quick ones. And one is that uh, I'm an idiot in my own reply. I'm like, I don't know how one, like how to intentionally awaken Kundalini. And meanwhile, I'm talking about my reading of Pranayama, wherein they describe using prana 
pranayama as a means of awakening kundalini. So I wanted to make an edit there to my own dumbness. And two, uh, we have a, a local friend. His name is Amos, Amos Snyder, A-M-O-S-S-N-I-D-E-R. And um, I wish I knew more about his story, actually, but I know he underwent uh, years, a pretty extended kundalini experience that led to a transformation for him and he now is a medical intuitive and you can find um his website is his name.com and um jim also you were describing the fellow that you just met had a kundalini experience does he have a, a website uh he does but i don't have access to the name right here right now i i have it right here It's uh oh, it's his name. His name is difficult to pronounce. Um, www. His name is Roland. It looks like it's spelled Achenjang, so I'll just spell his whole name. R O L A N D A C H E N J A N G dot com. So you can go to the to the pros then. <laughs> nice up for uh, me. All right. Um, well, I think that about wraps it up for our questions today. Jim, do you have any final thoughts to share with our listeners? Well, I just want to thank all of you who have taken the time out of your busy day to listen to us talk about these topics that are so much a part of each of our being. We are just like you and that we also struggle to better understand these topics and ourselves as well. We feel a complete unity with you in this great spiritual quest to discover the truth of ourselves and the universe in which we live with you. We send you our love and light and wish you the most blessed journey home into the arms of the one infinite creator. Thank you for that. You have been listening to LL Research's Law of One podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. and You can find more from LL Research at llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting this podcast. And a special thank you to Steve, Michael, Nick, and Lisa for sending in your questions and for uh, Gary and Jim for joining me in responding to these questions. If you have a question or a topic you'd like for us to discuss, please read the instructions at www.llresearch.org slash podcast. We love you all and we will talk with you next time.